Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash Ancestor. November 7th, Tasmanian Wolves. Colding walked out of the main building's airlock and into the morning cold. Even after many months, he couldn't get used to these temperatures. He ran the awkward run of someone trying to stay tucked inside his coat, quickly covering the 50 yards to the hangar. The hangar looked completely out of place in the snowy, barren landscape. Seven stories high at the peak, 150 yards long, 100 yards wide. Two huge sliding front doors allowed for a plane that would never really come, which was why the hangar doubled as the barn for the cows and tripled as the garage for the facility's two vehicles. At the base of the left-hand sliding door was a normal, man-sized entrance. Colding Waddle ran to it, and slipped inside. Inside, heat. Thank the powers that be. He walked to one of the heaters and pressed the higher button again and again, cranking it up to full. He heard natural gas hissing through the PVC pipe as he stripped off his gloves and held his hands in front of the grate. The security room computer controlled this heater and the 50 or 60 just like it that were spaced along the ground and up on the ceiling, but the temporary override was like heaven. Oh, come on, a high-pitched voice called out. You're turning up the heat? It's frickin' toasty in here. That's because you're a mutant from Canada, Colding called over his shoulder. You were probably born in an igloo. He jerked his hands back as the heat nearly burned him. There, that was better. Colding put his gloves back on, trapping the heat radiating off his warm skin. He turned saw the thick-bodied Brady Giovanni start up the diesel engine of the small tanker truck they used to refuel Bobby Valentine's helicopter. The hangar wasn't exactly toasty, as Brady had said, but it was well above freezing. The 70,000-square-foot building held 50 Holstein cows at the far end. They were over 60 yards away, a testament to the building's size. The big black-and-white animals chewed on feed. Occasionally, One of them let out a moo that echoed off the hangar's sheet metal roof some seven stories above. On this end of the hangar sat the fuel truck and a Humvee. The Hummer saw very little use, other than weekly eyeball checks of the off-site data backup, which sat at the end of the facility's one-mile-long landing strip, and for taking Erica Hole to weekly checkups of Baffin Island's two backup herd facilities. Each facility was a miserable 30 miles away. A 60-mile round trip with Hole was about as much fun as a barbed wire enema. Brady eased out of the fuel truck, leaving the engine to idle. All set for Bobby, he said. I'll start refueling his chopper as soon as he lands. It's cold as hell outside this morning, Colding said. After you open the doors, 
Make sure you adjust the heat so the cows don't get chilled. Sure thing. I'll crank the heat for them. You might say it'll be a hot time in the old town this morning. Brady laughed at his own joke, as usual, leaving Colding to smile and nod vaguely as he politely tried to grasp the humor. Brady's laugh sounded much like his voice, high-pitched, more at home in the body of a 15-year-old girl than a 6'4", 300-pound man. As a security guard, Brady cut an imposing figure. No one understood his jokes, not even Gunther or Andy Crossway, who had both served with the man in the Canadian Special Forces. Speaking of Andy, Colding checked his watch. A little past 10.30 a.m. Imagine that. Andy, the asshole crossweight, was late. Brady, you heard from Andy? Brady shook his head. Shit. Well, he'll be out here soon to help you with refueling. I'm going to step outside for a second. Hold down the fort. Brady laughed his high-pitched laugh. <laughs> Hold down the fort. That's good. Colding smiled, nodded. Hard enough not getting Brady's jokes. Now, apparently, he didn't get his own. He walked out of the hangar's small personnel door and back into the Sub-Zero morning's blazing white. His feet scrunched the facility's packed snow as he walked away from the hangar until they sank calf-deep into undisturbed drifts. He stood alone, staring out at the white expanse of Baffin Island. With his back to the lab, there wasn't a building in sight. Three years. Buck's sleeping. He should be drunk. Maybe he'd hang with Tim Feely after the morning's experiment. Tim was always down for a drink and always seemed to have a bottle close at hand. Three years. I just wish I had you back, Colding muttered. But Clarissa couldn't come back, no matter how bad he wished for it. He couldn't blunt the pain permanently lodged in his chest. What he could do, though, was make this goddamn project work. And by doing so, spare hundreds of thousands of people from experiencing pain just like his. He turned back to look at the compound, his home for almost two years. About 50 yards southwest of the hangar stood the compound's other building. The square, cinder block facility only looked simple. Its two entry points were airlocks that maintained a slight negative pressure. It was a sobering thought. Colding's home was a place designed to keep death in. The building contained state-of-the-art labs for genetics, computers, and veterinary medicine, as well as a small cafeteria, rec room, and nine 600-square-foot apartments. It was a good-sized facility, but after 20 isolated months, even the Trump Tower would seem claustrophobic. Between the hangar and the main facility stood a metal platform that supported a 10-foot satellite dish. The platform, the hangar, and the facility were the sum total of civilization at Janetta's Baffin Island base. A distant, rapid growl of rotor blades echoed off the landscape. Colding turned to see a dark speck on the horizon. The speck quickly grew into the familiar image of a Sikorsky S-76C helicopter. Colding loved the sight of that machine. If you took a typical TV news chopper, removed all the logos, and painted it flat black, you'd have a twin to Bobby's Sikorsky. With 12 seats and a range of over 400 nautical miles, the Sikorsky could get the entire staff to safety in case of an emergency. The heli closed in, then swooped down to the mile-long landing strip like a noisy shadow, kicking up clouds of powdery snow. The landing gear extended, 
Bobby Valentine set her down gently. After a short pause, a metallic rattling sound echoed across the snowy landscape. The hangar's massive doors, 240 feet wide and 70 feet high, split in the middle and slowly opened just enough for the fuel truck. Brady drove it out and stopped close to the Sikorsky. Colding walked toward the helicopter, watching the hangar doors to see if they would close. They stayed open, which meant, obviously, that Andy Crossweight was not in the hangar to shut them. The main building's front airlock opened. Colding expected to see Andy, but instead, Gunther Jones trotted out into the cold. At six foot two, Gunther stood eye to eye with Colding, but was much skinnier, his black Janata jacket always drooping from his rail thin frame like a loose shirt on a wire hanger. Gun, where the hell is the asshole? Asleep. I didn't want to leave you guys shorthanded. He handed Colding a walkie talkie. That's punched into Andy's room vidphone. Colding sighed and pressed the transmit button. Andy, pick up. No answer. Andy, come in. I'll keep squawking until you answer. The handset crackled back. Do you mind? I'm trying to sleep. Get your ass out here, Andy. Gunther's supposed to be off duty. Is Gun there? Yes, he came out to cover for your lazy ass. Then it's a reach-around happy ending for all. Leave me alone, Colding. Damn it, Andy. Come out here and do your job. I'll pass. My GAF level's pretty low right now. GAF? Colding looked at Gunther. His give-a-fuck level, Gunther said. Colding considered Andy only slightly more useful than a day-old dog turd. He'd served with Magnus, which was the only reason the dangerous little bastard had a job at all. Andy? I'm... Uh-oh, Andy said. I think this thing is broken. A click, and with it, the conversation was over. Colding didn't bother hitting the transmit button. Don't sweat it, Gunther said. I don't mind. Let me say hi to Bobby and I'll close up the hangar. Crank the heat. Cool? Colding nodded. The two men reached the Sikorsky as the rotor blades started their slow spin down, and Bobby Valentine hopped out. Bobby was the Paglione's private pilot and all-around errand boy. He pushed his heavy, brownish-blonde hair away from his eyes and flashed the smile that seemed to get him laid everywhere he went. He carried a lunchbox-sized metal case in his left hand. His right, he offered to Colding, who shook it firmly. PJ, how are you? I'm just fine, Bobby V., Colding said. Okay, flight? Bobby nodded. It was fine, as the return trip will be if I get out of here before that low-pressure system comes in. Bobby reached out to shake Gunther's hand. Gun, my man! How's the writing coming? Good, real good. I am almost finished with the third book. Stephanie Meyer won't know what hit her. Go get him, tiger, Bobby said. Gunther nodded, then jogged to the hangar. He ran by Brady, who was dragging a fuel hose to the Sikorsky. Bobby gently lifted the metal case like it was a fragile heirloom and handed it to Colding. Right there is a regular who's who of extinction, Bobby said. Caribbean monk seal, stellar sea cow, pig-footed bandicoot, and a Tasmanian wolf. A Tasmanian wolf? Those have been gone since the 30s. Bobby nodded. We found a stuffed one in Auckland. Got some DNA out of the fur or something. Okay, package delivered. So let's get me turned around and out of here. That soon? Doc Roomcorp was dying to go flying with you. 
Bobby checked his watch. Can Hair Doctor do it right now? He's in the middle of an embryonic immune reaction experiment. Sorry, I can't wait, Bobby said. Besides, Doc Roomcurve doesn't really need any more lessons. I'll take him out next time. Colding checked his watch. 10.50 a.m. Roomcorf and company had been at it for three hours now and would soon finish. Colding hurried inside, leaving Brady and Gunther to get Bobby turned around quickly. Hopefully this time, unlike the last 15 embryonic runs, Colding would be able to report to Dante with some good news. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. November 7th. She's got balls. The tiny, floating ball of cells could not think, could not react. It could not feel. If it could, it would have felt only one thing. Fear. Fear at the monster floating close by. Amorphous, insidious, unrelenting, the monster reached out with flowing tendrils that touched the ball of cells, tasting the surface. The floating ball vibrated a little each time one of its cells completed mitosis, splitting from one cell into two daughter cells. And that happened rapidly. More rapidly than in any other animal, any other life form. Nothing divided this fast, this efficiently. So fast, the living balls vibrated every three or four minutes, cells splitting, doubling their number over and over again. The floating balls had begun as a cow's single-celled egg. Now, only the outer membrane could truly be called bovine. The interior contained a unique genome that was mostly something else. The amorphous monster? A macrophage, a white blood cell, a hunter-killer taken from that same cow's blood and dropped into a petri dish with the hybrid egg. The monster's tendrils reached out, boneless, shapeless flowing like intelligent water. They caressed the rapidly dividing egg, sensing chemicals, tasting the egg for one purpose only, to see if the egg was self. It was not. The egg was other, and anything other had to be destroyed. John knew, even at this early stage, that failure had come calling once again. She, Klaus Rumkorf, Erica Hole, and Tim Feely watched the giant monitor that took up an entire wall of the equipment-packed genetics lab. 
the monitor's upper right-hand corner showed green numbers, 72 out of 150. The rest of the huge screen showed a grid of squares, 10 high, 15 across. Over half of those squares were black. The remaining squares each showed a grainy gray picture of a highly magnified embryo. The 150 denoted the number of embryos alive when the experiment began. 50 cows, 3 genetically modified eggs from each cow, each egg tricked into replicating without fertilization. As soon as a fertilized egg, called a zygote, split into two daughter cells, it became an embryo, a growing organism. Each embryo sat in a petri dish filled with a nutrient-rich solution and immune system elements from the same cow, macrophages, natural killer cells, and T lymphocytes, elements that combine to work as the body's own special ops assassins targeted at viruses, bacteria, and other harmful pathogens. The 72 represented the number of embryos still alive, not yet destroyed by the voracious white blood cells. Jian watched the counter change to 68 out of 150. Ruhmkorff seemed to vibrate with anger, the frequency of that vibration increasing ever so slightly each time the number dropped. He was only a hair taller than Jian, but she outweighed him by at least 100 pounds. His eyes looked wide and bug-like behind thick, black-framed glasses. The madder he became, the more he shook. The more he shook, the more his comb-over came apart, exposing his shiny, balding pate. 65 out of 150. This is ridiculous, Erica said, her cultured Dutch accent dripping with disgust. John glared at the demure woman. She hated Hole, not only because she was a complete bitch, but also because she was so pretty and feminine, all the things that John was not. Hole wore her silvery gray hair in a tight bun that revealed a haughty face. She had the inevitable wrinkles do any 45-year-old woman, but nothing that even resembled a laugh line. Hole looked so pale that Jean often wondered if the woman had seen anything but the inside of a sunless lab for the last 30 years. 61 out of 150. Time? Broomcorp asked. Jean, Tim, and Erica automatically looked at their watches, but the question was meant for Erica. 21 minutes, 10 seconds, she said. Remove the failures from the screen, Broomcorp said through clenched teeth. Tim Feely quietly typed in a few keystrokes. The black squares disappeared. 61 squares, now much larger, remained. Tim was Jean's assistant, a biologist with impressive bioinformatics skills. He wasn't on Jean's level, of course, but his multidisciplinary approach bridged the gap between Jean's computer skills and Erica's biological expertise. He was bigger than Ruhmkorff, but not by much. Jean hated the fact that even though the project had two men and two women, she was always the largest person in the room. John focused on one of the squares. The tiny embryo sat helpless, a gray, translucent cluster of cells defined by a whitish circle. At 16 cells, the terminology changed from embryo to morula, Latin for mulberry, so named for its resemblance to the fruit. It normally took a mammalian embryo a few days to reach the marula stage. Jian's creatures reached this stage in just 20 minutes. Left alone, the marula would continue to divide until it became a hollow ball of cells known as a blastocyst. 
But to keep growing, a blastocyst had to embed itself into the lining of a mother's uterus. And that could never happen as long as the cow's immune system treated the embryo like a harmful foreign body. 54 out of 150. Jean focused on a single square. From the marula's left, a macrophage began oozing into view, moving like an amoeba, extending pseudopodia as it slid and reached. All along the wall-sized monitor, the white squares steadily blinked their way to blackness. 48 out of 150. Damn it, Rumkorf hissed, and Jian wondered how he could speak so clearly with his teeth pressed together like that. The macrophage operated on chemicals, grabbing molecules from the environment and reacting to them. The marula's outer membrane, the zona pellucida, was the same egg membrane taken from the cow. That meant it was 100% natural, native to the cow, something macrophages would almost never attack. But what lay inside that outer shell was something created by Jean. Jean and her god machine. 34 out of 150. Clear them out again, Rumkorf said. Tim tapped the keys. The black squares again disappeared. The remaining grayish squares grew even larger. Instantly, the larger squares started blinking to black. 24 out of 150. Fuck, Erica said in a decidedly uncultured tone. Inside the marula, a cell quivered. Its sides pinched in, the shape changing from a circle to an hourglass. Mitosis. A macrophage tendril reached the marula, touched it, almost caressing it. Fourteen out of 150. The macrophage's entire amorphous body slid into view, a grayish, shapeless mass. Nine out of 150. The squares steadily blinked out, their blackness mocking Jeanne, reminding her of her lack of skill, her stupidity, her failure. Four out of 150. The macrophage moved closer to the marula. The dividing cell quivered once more, and the single cell became two. Growth. Success. But it was too late. One out of 150. The macrophages' tendrils encircled the ball, then touched on the other side, surrounding it. The tendrils joined, engulfing the prey. The square turned black, leaving only a white line grid and a green number. Zero out of 150. Well, that was just spectacular, Rumkorf said. Absolutely spectacular. Oh, please, Erica said. I really don't want to hear it. Rumkorf turned to face her. You're going to hear it. We have to produce results. For heaven's sakes, Erica, you've built your whole career on this process. That was different. The quagga and the zebra are almost genetically identical. This thing we're creating is artificial, Klaus. If John can't produce a proper genome, the experiment is flawed to begin with. John wanted to find a place to hide. Rumkorf and Erica had been lovers once, but no more. Now, they fought like a divorced couple. Erica jerked her thumb at Jean. It's her fault. All she can do is give me an embryo with a 65% success probability. I need at least 90% to have any chance. You're both responsible, Rumkorf said. 
they're missing something here. Specific proteins are producing the signals that trigger the immune response. You have to figure out which genes are producing the offending proteins. We've looked, Erica said. We've gone over it again and again. The computer keeps analyzing. We keep making changes, but the same thing happens every time. Roomcore slowly ran a hand over his head, putting his comb over mostly back in place. We're too close to it. We've got to change our way of thinking. I know the fatal flaw is staring us in the face. We just don't recognize it. Tim stood up and stretched. He ran both hands through his short but thick blonde locks, looking directly at Roomcorf when he did. John wondered if Tim did that on purpose, to mock Roomcorf's thinning hair. We've been over this a hundred times, Tim said. I'm already reviewing all of Jeanne and Erica's work on top of doing my own. Erica let out a huff. As if you could even understand my work, you idiot. You shut up, Jan said. You do not talk to Tim like that. Erica smirked, first at Jan, then at Tim. Such a big man, Tim. You need a fat old woman to fight your battles for you. Tim's body stayed perfectly still except for his right hand, which extended and flipped Erica the middle finger. That will be enough, Mr. Feely, Rumcor said. If you're not smart enough to contribute to the work, the least you can do is shut your mouth and focus your worthless brain on running your little computer. Tim's hands clenched into fists. John felt so bad for him. All his life, Tim Feely had probably been used to being the smartest person in the room. Here, he was the dumbest, something Klaus never let him forget. I realize we're all frustrated, Rumkorf said. But we have to find a way to think in new directions. We're so close. Can't you all feel it? His bug-eyed glare swept around the room, eliciting delayed nods of agreement from all of them. They were close, maddeningly so. Jean just couldn't find that missing piece. It almost made her long for the days before the medicine, when the ideas came freer, faster. But no, that wouldn't do. She knew all too well where that led. Rumkorf took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes. I want you all to think about something. He put the glasses back on. It took us an hour to conduct this experiment. In that hour, at least four people died from organ failure. Four people who would have lived if they had a replacement. In 24 hours, almost a hundred people will die. Perhaps you should consider that before you start bickering again. Jeanne, Tim, and even Erica stared at the floor. Whatever it takes, Rumkorf said. Whatever it takes, we will make this happen. We've just failed the immune response test for the 16th time. All of you, go work from your rooms. Maybe if we stop sniping at each other, we can find that last obstacle and eliminate it. Jeanne nodded, then walked out of the lab and headed back to her small apartment. Sixteen immune response tests. Sixteen failures. She had to find a way to make number seventeen work. Had to. Because millions of lives depended on her and her alone. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced 
by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.